she's waiting there and suddenly she hears this very loud bang and she knows immediately that it's a gunshot and she was frightened and she thought that's Kevin. She straight away thought that it was something to do with her husband. About the only thing he said when his wife ran over to him was the bastard got me. There is her husband Kevin lying on the ground writhing in agony bleeding copious amounts of blood. I'm Andrew Rule. this is Life and Crimes. This week we're going to look at the shooting of a family man at Bendigo back in April 1985. It's always been one of the very nasty mysteries in regional Victoria. That is the shooting death of a man called Kevin Pearce. Keen listeners might recall that we have mentioned this case in passing in another podcast, but today we're going to tell the whole story plus a bit. Now, Kevin Pearce, to all intents and purposes, was an average sort of guy. He was married with three young adult daughters. I think the third one might have still been at high school, but the other two were young adults. I've been in close touch over the years with his middle daughter, Donna, and also his widow, Joan. The other two daughters aren't as keen to talk about their father's death because it distresses them greatly, which is fair enough. But Donna and her mother, Joan, 36 years later, still want answers about what happened to their Kevin. Now, the simple story is that Kevin had worked at Myers in the menswear department for a few years in Bendigo. He decided he wanted his own business. He and his wife, Joan, took over a milk bar right in the heart of Bendigo. And Kevin decided that he also wanted to get a truck and have a mail run. These are the contractors that get the Australia Post contracts to run the mail up to other provincial centres and also to transport parcels and freight and so on, sort of light tray truck type work. And he purchased a truck in the early 80s. He managed to get the Australia Post contracts to run the mail and parcels up the highway from Bendigo to Mildura and also a smaller round to Echuca. These were the two runs that he had. Initially, he was in business with a couple of other guys, one called Bill Matthews, proper name William James Matthews, a bit younger than Kevin. Kevin was in his early 40s at this stage and Matthews was in his late 30s, whereas Kevin was sort of a round-faced, jolly, jovial, harmless sort of man. Matthews was a sort of tougher guy. He wore his hair long and tied back in a ponytail. He was more physically imposing. He was a bit more of a sort of a a knockabout type of guy. Probably to see him, you'd think he looked like a smooth version of a bikey, let's say, as a descriptor. Not that he was a bikey. He was a guy that owned a truck or two and had various business interests around Bendigo, which is interesting as it turns out. There was a third guy involved with them in the early days, a fellow called Barry Coates. He also was a small operator with a truck and he had a mail run, you know, to Kyneton or somewhere else. And these three initially worked together and then worked separately running their own mail runs. 
And it came to pass, if you believe the sort of official version of the story, that Matthews and Kevin Pearce fell out. Now, the story as it has been repeatedly told is a fairly simple one, and that is that Kevin Pearce couldn't work out why his costs were exceeding his income on the trucks that, that he was running, and he decided that the shared fuel bowser that he used with Matthews was somehow being abused or tickled. It was a setup so that either of them could use the bowser, but um, clearly you were supposed to pay your share of the fuel, whatever fuel you used, you should pay for. Rightly or wrongly, Kevin Pearce accused Bill Matthews of basically stealing his fuel, stealing fuel and not paying for it. And this is what Kevin told his wife, Joan. He said, I'm not making any money because um, Matthews has been stealing the fuel and so on and so forth. And in the end, probably at his wife's urging, he went to the police about this and wanted charges laid against Matthews. Now, there may well be more to the story, but this is the sort of known facts. The police obviously were doing some sort of investigation. Meanwhile, mild-mannered Kevin Pearce becomes very nervous about what has happened and about what he's done because he hears rumours around town that Matthews is out to get him. Now, it may be that those rumours are not correct and it might have been just gossip, idle, vicious gossip with no basis. I make no comment about it, but certainly Kevin Pearce was convinced that Matthews was after him. He believed that Matthews had the potential to be dangerous and one of the reasons for that is that when they were friends, he had discussed with Matthews some problem Matthews had with a bakery business in Eagle Hawk where Matthews said the proprietor that he was in business with was losing money or something and he said something flippant like, you know, for a couple of grand I could get him knocked off or, or something like that. One of those throwaway lines that doesn't mean anything much until, in fact, someone ends up being shot and then it perhaps takes on more meaning. Kevin Pearce gets so nervous in the early months of 1985 that at a family wedding in Melbourne, he approaches a relative who works in the police force, a fellow called Roger Irwin, and he said, Roger, I'm very worried. I've been told to watch my back. I've been warned that somebody's out to get me. And the policeman relative said, and who's that? Who's threatening you? And he said, a guy called Matthews, Kevin was so nervous that he would get his middle daughter, Donna, and Donna's the one who's been talking to me about this case on and off for several years now. He would get Donna to follow him in her car on his truck run so that, you know, when he pulled into a country post office in the middle of the night with parcels and mail and dropped the bags around the back of the post office, he would get her to park nearby and he'd say, don't get out of the car, but if if I don't come out in five minutes, you know something's gone wrong, somebody's got me, I want you to go straight to the police. And so this is how genuinely frightened he was. He had his daughter tagging him up and down the highway for some time. On 15th of April, 1985, 
it's getting towards midnight, I think between 11.30 and midnight, and Kevin Pearce, as he did most nights of the week, he's doing his nightly run to Mildura, so it was more or less an all-night trip by the time he went up there and unloaded and so on and came back. And he had to load up some cargo in McPhee's transport depot in Golden Square, which is a outer suburb of Bendigo. And his wife, Joan, was going to accompany him on this trip just to keep him company, as people sometimes do. And she was waiting at the Bendigo Mail Exchange, which was a few blocks away. She was waiting for the Melbourne mail truck to get in because that mail would have to be sorted and go onto the Mildura truck with she and her husband. And she's waiting there and suddenly she hears this very loud bang and she knows immediately that it's a gunshot. And she was frightened and she thought that's... Kevin. She straight away thought that it was something to do with her husband. At that minute, the Melbourne mail truck arrives and she says, quick, drive me up to McPhee's depot. She jumps in the mail truck. The driver drives her up to McPhee's depot, which is only a few blocks away. She jumps out and she confronts a terrible scene. There is her husband, Kevin, lying on the ground, writhing in agony, bleeding copious amounts of blood. And around him are you know, sort of co-workers that have been helping load the trucks, they are absolutely horrified and terrified. They have grabbed a big roll of toilet paper to try and stop the blood flowing from this massive wound that had been created when a heavy calibre bullet hit him. Now, it turns out he's been hit with a three oh eight bullet. A three oh eight is a heavy rifle calibre developed basically as a military weapon for the United States military in two world wars. It's such a common round that there's many variations on 308s. There's many sporting rifles and big game shooting rifles and so on that use the same 308 round. And it was one of these that has been used to shoot him. It has basically shattered one of his arms and then the round has entered his lower back near his spine and blown a hole big enough that a toilet roll fitted in the hole. It was a terrible, terrible wound. About the only thing he said when his wife ran over to him was, the bastard got me. Now, there was no doubt in his mind or in her mind that he was referring to Bill Matthews. That doesn't prove that it was Bill Matthews, but that's what they thought because that's who they were frightened of. He survives that night. There's an ambulance trip which takes him down to the Austin Hospital in Melbourne. He survives not only that night, but he survives for three weeks. Now, this is a mixed blessing. It allowed his family to reconcile themselves to the fact that he was probably going to die. They were able to be with him and talk to him and say their farewells, which is a bittersweet thing to be able to do, probably better in some ways than a sudden death. But what it meant was for the police, it meant that it wasn't actually a homicide until three weeks later, because while Kevin was alive, it remained basically a local police matter, you know, an unauthorised shooting in a built-up area, attempted murder, whatever. So it wasn't really a case for the homicide squad until he died. And in that three-week gap, local police 
perhaps because um, there were no obvious clues or whatever, local police didn't really get very far with investigating the case. You might speculate that they'd managed to, you know, walk over the crime scene quite a lot. They'd found certain things which they would later hand over to the homicide squad. But essentially, they had not progressed very far. And it meant that in those three weeks that witnesses managed to probably get their stories muddled and potential suspects probably got a chance to get their stories straight. The potential suspects were then and always have been Bill Matthews and anybody who might have helped him. And in this case, the person that might have helped him was a young woman called Diane Robertson. Now, Diane Robertson was extremely young. I think she might have been only 20 or 21. She worked for Matthews, who was almost twice her age. He was probably 39. And although Matthews had a wife and three children and had left the wife and three children and moved in with a de facto wife, a woman called Karen Strawhorn, he was also conducting an affair with Diane Robertson. All this came out later in the inquest. There's no secret about this. And it turns out that Diane Robertson would hang around the trucking depot all night and all this sort of stuff. It was said that a small yellow car was seen leaving the scene of the shooting that night at you know midnight. Diane Robertson supposedly had a small yellow car. It matched roughly the description of her car. One of the things the police found at the scene, 44 metres from where Kevin was shot, they found where the shooter had lain under a tree on a mullock heap. A mullock heap, of course, is a heap of dirt left over from the old mining days at Bendigo. And someone had laid there and the police found some interesting things. And you would have to wonder whether they were put there deliberately for the police to find. One was a collection of cigarette butts, all the same sort of butt. They were John Player Specials, a relatively unusual brand of cigarette that not many people smoked. Diane Robertson did smoke that brand. It is said that police were satisfied that Bill Matthews did not smoke at that time. He wasn't a smoker at that time, although I'm told by other sources that indeed he had been a smoker in the past. So who'd be sure? Perhaps one reason for getting back on the cigarettes would be if you're lying in wait waiting to shoot somebody, it'd be a pretty good time to want to light one up if you were a reformed smoker. But anyway, the police found this collection of cigarette butts where the shooter had lain in wait, and they also found, critically, an empty 308 bullet case, a bullet shell. Now, why a careful, cold-blooded shooter would eject the shell after shooting, I don't know, presuming it was a bolt-action rifle, and why a careful, cold-blooded shooter would leave an empty shell there is interesting. You'd think that the first thing they'd do is pick it up and take it with them. But anyway, regardless of how the shell got there, the police did find an empty shell at that spot, and that becomes very important to this story. In fact, that shell actually probably prevented 
charges being laid against Bill Matthews for reasons that will become clear. And we'll be back after this. Access a world of true crime podcasts on CrimeX Plus, where award-winning journalists take a deep dive into unsolved cases. Every week, we're waking up to a dead woman, a dead mother, sister, auntie, grandmother. It's not good enough. From the team that brought you The Teacher's Pet, Shadow of Doubt, and Dying Rose, unlock early, ad-free, and bonus content from brand new series and flagship shows such as I Catch Killers with Gary Jubilin. One was shot in the mouth, and I thought he was dead. Another one been shot with a shotgun and I got the overspray. Search for CrimeX Plus on Apple Podcasts to start digging deep into the world of true crime. The Homicide Squad, three weeks after the shooting, hop into the case because the victim is now dead. They start out by interviewing everybody they can. They soon work out that Bill Matthews is the main and only real suspect and they put together information for an inquest which is held the following year, in 1986, conducted in Bendigo by the state coroner, Hal Hellenstein, a very well-known coroner in his day. And the police evidence is very intriguing. One of the things that they've found through investigation and probably through telephone taps and talking to various other people who knew Bill Matthews, they were able to discover that Matthews had possession at some stage of a 308 rifle. Now, it would appear that this rifle was one that had vanished from a loading bay in Footscray, a loading bay where a Matthews truck was being loaded at some point back in 1984, a rifle that was being consigned to a rural buyer in its big cardboard package vanished from the loading bay and it's open to suggestion that it was stolen and that it ended up at Bendigo in the possession of Bill Matthews or someone associated with him because when the police investigated, they found that Diane Robertson, this is Matthews' young girlfriend, had telephoned his former workmate and friend Barry Coates and said, you know, Bill wants me to tell you that there's a rifle and ammunition has been hidden in your backyard out where you live. Could you please get hold of it and get rid of it? Coates has agreed to get rid of the rifle that's been hidden in his backyard with ammunition and he gets the rifle and he and his wife drive out to Lake Epilock, which is a major dam water storage, and he throws the rifle and the ammunition into the lake. Now, that's where it would have stayed except for one thing. His daughter, Sharon Coates, knew what her parents were up to or what her father had done and she disapproved and she contacted the police and told them where the rifle had gone. And the police were able to send divers out to retrieve the weapon and the ammunition. Now, they were fairly jubilant at the homicide squad because the murder victim was being shot with a 308 rifle and shot, it would appear, with a particular brand of ammunition, that is Musgrave ammunition. And they thought this because the empty shell they'd found at the shooting scene was an empty Musgrave shell. The ammunition found with the rifle thrown into the lake was, guess what, 
Musgrave. And so the police thought, job done, we have the smoking gun and this will be enough to have the coroner send Bill Matthews directly to trial after the inquest and he can stand trial for murder. Just one problem with that. The problem was that when the police ballistics experts looked at the rifle from the lake and test fire it, they realised that the rifle leaves a particular sort of mark on the shells that it uses and that mark did not match the shell found at the shooting site. So all of a sudden, the police's own ballistics experts were saying, this is not the murder weapon if you believe that the murder weapon used the empty shell found at Golden Square. Now, it meant that the chain of evidence was sufficiently distorted and broken so that the Director of Public Prosecutions decided that even though there were really no other suspects for the shooting of Kevin Pearce, that the evidence was not going to be strong enough to put before a jury. And so despite the fact that the coroner found, and I quote, one would have to conclude that it, that's the murder, was carried out by a person who had some knowledge of Mr. Pierce's routine. It was a well-planned and clearly calculated operation. My formal findings on this matter are that Kevin Hugh Pierce was shot by or by the arrangement and organisation of William James Matthews. Now, Matthews was committed for trial, but as mentioned a minute ago, the Director of Public Prosecutions reviewed the case and withdrew the charges. Furthermore, Matthews was found not guilty of stealing fuel from his partners. And so Billy Matthews, as they called him, walked free within some months of this whole thing happening. That does not mean that he hasn't been named several times over the years because he remains the only viable known suspect for this shooting. No one else has bobbed up. In 2015, the state government saw fit to put up a $1 million reward for this case, along with a few other outstanding cold cases, because the police believe that it is eminently solvable and that someone somewhere is going to know enough to be able to put a case together. Now, you don't have to be uh, Sherlock Holmes to realise that Diane Robertson, the young woman who was involved with Matthews at the time and who certainly was involved enough to make a phone call to Barry Coates to get rid of the rifle and who may well have had something to do with supplying a getaway car and, in fact, who conceivably, conceivably was with Matthews on the night in question. It's easy to see that the police would be very interested in whether her memory could recover somewhat. Diane Robertson no longer has that name. She has a different name because she married and moved many thousands of kilometres from Bendigo, I believe. She probably went north rather than west. And once or twice or more over the years, homicide squad detectives have travelled from Melbourne 
to the north to visit her and have a long, strong talk to her. So far, that hasn't borne fruit, but Bill Matthews is now a man in his 70s. He's no longer the rough, tough, probably fairly imposing figure that he once was. And Diane Robertson, as she was known, is now a middle-aged woman, probably a mother, maybe a grandmother, who could do with a million dollars or part thereof if she in fact knows something that could help the police in their investigations. She may not, of course, be the only person that could help. It may be that Matthew's de facto partner, Karen Strawhorn, could help. It's conceivable that his first wife could help. And I say that because of an interesting thing that happened. Matthew's first wife, Mary, spoke to Kevin Pierce's widow, Joan, shortly after the shooting. And she said, a strange thing happened. She said, when it came on the radio the morning after the shooting, and it was on the local news, her son, that is the boy Matthews, turned to his mother and said, that was dad, wasn't it? So Bill Matthews' own family believe that he did it. And they are not the only ones. It's clear that the police are trying very hard to solve this. They're cooperating with a new TV special about the case because they believe it's solvable. So if any of our listeners have any extra information to add, and someone out there probably has, please get in touch with Crime Stoppers or with the Homicide Squad. And we'll be back after this to finish our story. I add one more thing to this story that, has never come out before, and that is the possibility that there is a stronger motivation for murder than we knew about before. It turns out that Bill Matthews was one of the two very active starting price bookmakers who operated in Bendigo in that era. Now, there was a time, you know, after World War II and before the introduction of the TAB, when Starting price bookmakers, SP bookies, operated in every barbershop and every second pub, and there were thousands of them around Australia. They were regarded as essentially harmless. They were tolerated, although illegal. Many of them turned over relatively small amounts, weren't seen as a great social evil. But with the coming of the TAB and the regularisation of the gambling industry, so that more bookies became licensed bookmakers. SPs became uh, fewer in number, probably turned over higher volumes, and I think it's fair to say that many of them would have dealt often in their daily or weekly betting sessions with all sorts of colourful people because there would be people who had black money who would want to bet with SP bookies and the people with black money would include some absolute proper crooks, you know, everything from bank robbers to drug dealers to whatever it might take. Those sort of people tend to be gamblers and many of them would tend to bet with SP bookies, which means that SP bookies would by necessity rub shoulders with some very nasty, tough people and would have access 
to some nasty, tough people. And so the revelation that Bill Matthews was an SP bookie at the time, and I have this from impeccable sources and more than one source, is very interesting because it would suggest that not only Matthews was tied up with people who were colourful to say the least, but that he was afforded some form of protection or tolerance by at least some members of the police force. Now, I'm not suggesting that every police officer that ever worked at Bendigo was in on the joke. That would be ridiculous. But it is clear that someone in the police at Bendigo at that time must have had some idea that Bill Matthews was an SP bookie. And it's open to speculation that to some extent he and the other SP bookie in town probably had some form of protection or some form of understanding with the local police. And that is an interesting spanner to throw into the works because it suggests that maybe, just maybe, not everybody in the police force was trying as hard as they might have in that first three weeks. There is another issue that comes out of Matthew's status as an SP bookie. That is that Kevin Pearce was in fact a very keen punter. He was to some extent a victim of the punt probably. His daughter Donna, who loved her father then and loves him still, and sees him as the victim of a terribly unjust and monstrous crime. She says, look, Dad wasn't perfect. He loved us. He was great. He treated us all well. He was kind. He was gentle. But he was a punter. And I can recall, she said, back in those days, this is the early 80s, she would often have to run down to the TAB or somewhere and have 10 or $20 per race on horses for her father. Now, In those days, $10 or $20 was actually a fairly significant sum. And if you had that much on each race every Saturday and perhaps every Wednesday, it meant that you were an habitual gambler, an habitual punter. And an habitual punter who hasn't got access to large amounts of funds will inevitably lose and will end up owing money to bookmakers. Now, if you run out of cash and you can't bet at the TAB or you can't go to the races and bet with the bookies standing under their umbrellas, what you can do is bet on the nod. You can get credit from your friendly local SP. And it's open to speculation that Kevin Pearce ran up gambling debts and there's every chance he ran up gambling debts with Bill Matthews and that this might be the unknown part of the story which would explain the animosity between the two men. It would explain why Pierce was increasingly nervous and edgy for several months and why Matthews was increasingly angry and threatening for several months. It is probably the missing part of the puzzle. Whether it in any way helps solve the story or the case, I don't know. It probably doesn't, but it certainly adds meat to the bones. Let's see what the Homicide Squad's latest visit up north produces. Perhaps this time 
someone will produce some evidence that will help launch a prosecution 36 years after the event. Thanks for listening. Life and Crimes is a Sunday Herald Sun production for True Crime Australia. Our producer is John Burton. If you like the show, leave a five-star rating and a review wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to know more about these stories, links are in the description of this episode. A troubled young woman. Her evil parents. We never had any issues between us. Has justice been done? I'm in a prison. Join journalist Richard Gilliatt as he delves into one of Australia's most gripping cases. Shadow of Doubt, a new podcast investigation from The Australian. I cannot find one of these allegations that's possible. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts.